I'll be reading tonight from 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 18. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life, and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die, and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, Go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimchi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah. You shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael Jehu will kill, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. 
Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Well, good evening to you, and we're going to be right here in 1 Kings 19 together. We're going to be thinking about um, what happens and what shall we do when we're down, down in the dumps, down in the dumps, when we are down in the depths of despair. I think you would agree that Elijah is in that position and condition this evening. If you notice, Brother Larry, appreciate Brother Larry reading for us, chapter 19, verse 4. Uh, when he went a day's journey into uh, the wilderness, he came, sat under that juniper tree, and he just said, um, he asked that he just might die. He said, it's enough now, O Lord, it's enough. Take away my life, for I am no better uh, than my father's. And so we see that he's definitely down uh, in the dumps of despair. And we get that way sometimes, all of us do. And what can we do about it? And this chapter can give us some ideas about coming out of the dumps, coming out of the dumps, coming out of the depths of despair. It happens to all of us. You're, you might recall a question that David poses over in Psalm 42, about verses 6 and 7. He said, Oh, my soul, why are you cast down? Oh, my soul, why are you cast down? That happens to us. It just, we just get down. We're down deep in our soul. Maybe some happenings around us have, have contributed to it, but we wonder how can we, how can we come up out of this little hole that we're in. And so notice just a few observations uh, with me as we uh, see how God worked on Elijah and how maybe he can work on us as well. We'll just go through the chapter uh, briefly here. In the first few verses, you see that Elijah needed to overcome the fear of death, and that's the case with us as well. Elijah needed to come overcome the fear of death. Now, there is a bounty on his head. And if you'll notice here what Jezebel says in verse 2, so may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life Elijah, as one of them, by this time tomorrow. You've got 24 hours to live. You've, that's all you've got left. That's the threat coming uh, to Elijah. You recall back in chapter 18, a great contest between Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal. They, all those prophets belonged to Jezebel. And uh, if you notice in that preceding chapter that they are all slain. They are all defeated at, at Mount Carmel. But they're all slain. And she wants uh, Elijah to become as one of them. And so he needed to work on his response to threats, his response to death. And probably uh, so do we. But thankfully, we have the Lord Jesus. Thank God for the Lord Jesus. Because in his coming, in his, in his work on the cross, he helps us to overcome the fear of death. Notice in Hebrews 2. Uh, 14 and 15, Jesus partook of flesh that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and also that he might deliver, 
So what did Jesus do? He destroyed the devil, and also his purpose was to deliver all of us who all of our lifetime have had the fear of death, and we've been enslaved to it. Okay? And so that's one of the things, that's one of the great blessings of Jesus coming to this earth. Notice Paul's words in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 10, 2 Timothy 1 verse 10, where he says that Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So Jesus abolished death. How, how did he do that? Well, in his being able to escape death, he opened up the way for us uh, to do the same. You see, in Revelation 1 verse 18, Jesus speaks to John. He says, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. In a sense, Hebrews 6.20 says, Jesus is our forerunner. So in that he was able to die and overcome death, then he holds out that path for us as well. He holds out that promise to us as well. So he has gone ahead of us and prepared the way as a forerunner. And right now, what's he doing? John 14.2, he is preparing a place for us. I go and prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, Jesus says, I will come again and receive you unto myself. So Jesus, in that sense, he abolished death. And he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Life and immortality there in chapter 1, verse 10 of 2 Timothy. Life and immortality. That kind of sums up all the blessings of, of uh, receiving the gospel. Okay, Life having to do with forgiveness of sins. And in Romans 6, 4, when we're baptized into the death of Jesus, we're, we're raised to walk in newness of life. So the gospel brings us forgiveness, spiritual life, but also the gospel brings us immortality, eternal life. Technically, the word immortality means a state of being not in decay. The state of not having to decay. If you have watch someone in their body decay, then that brings an impression upon you, but it also causes you to long for what the, the inspired apostle is saying right here, that through the gospel we can have the hope of not only forgiveness of sins, but eternal life, that, that immortality. How does that immortality come? Well, on judgment day, we will all receive a new body that does not decay. As Paul discusses it in Philippians 3.21, he says God will transform this lowly body by his power. God will transform this lowly body, this vile body, unto a body like Jesus, a glorious body like Jesus. And so on Judgment Day, that, that glorious change will overtake us. And this body here, which is decaying, will no longer be, and we'll have a glorious body. Okay. And so we have all the reasons in the world to be able to overcome the fear of death because of this promise and this hope that we have uh, before us. Now, in that, all men and, and everybody has uh, some level a fear of death, especially those out here in the world who do not know Christ, who are not in Christ. 
And we need to use that as a tool. We need to, to approach people and talk to people. If you, if you wonder, how can I get someone on the subject of Christ and salvation, this is one of those subjects because everybody, ask somebody, what are your plans after here? What, what are your plans when you walk off this earth? And just look at the obituaries. Everyone passes away at different ages in life. What, are your, what do you think happens to you? And from there, be ready to talk to, them, talk to them about Jesus and salvation. All right. So that's one thing that, that um, Elijah needed to work on, and perhaps we do too. A second thought here about coming out of the, uh, out of the dumps is to remember to stay close to God, no matter what, to stay close to God. Now, the reason we say that from this context is because look at the distance that Elijah tries to put between him or where he has been working and where he is going. He goes, it says here, it goes, verse 3, goes to Beersheba. That's the southernmost town in Judah. And that's about, that's about a 90-mile trip right there. And then from there, he leaves his servant there, and he goes a day's journey, which would probably be at least 30 miles, we would estimate, out into the wilderness. And then from there, he's going to go further all the way down to Sinai, all the way down to Mount Horeb, and that's going to be a 40-day journey, and it's going to be uh, something like 200-plus miles. So altogether, easily you can say, by the time Elijah gets down here in verse 9, and he goes into this cave, he has traveled well over 300 miles to put a distance between himself and where he has been working, perhaps, what's he thinking? I don't, I don't, we're not real sure what he's thinking. Okay. Is he trying to distance himself from God? Is he trying to just to get away because he feels sorry for himself? But men often do this, and why is that? You know, Jonah ran away. Jonah did not agree with God's mission to Nineveh, and he went in the opposite direction. He put distance between uh, him and God. But both of these prophets know what Proverbs 15.3 says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the, the evil and the good. They know they can't go anywhere without God seeing them. But, but why is it that, that not only did the prophets do this sometimes, but we do this sometimes. We, we travel. We, sometimes we try to put a distance between ourselves and what we've been doing. And why is that? But no matter why that is, the lesson here is that when we get down, that is the very time to especially draw close to God. And we know how to do that through prayer and through worship, through study and serving, especially through repenting of our sins. Okay. Especially through repenting of our sins. We often read James 4, draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners. Purify uh, your minds and cleanse your hands and purify your hearts, it says. You sinners, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaven. What's he saying? You need to get down with your sins and repent of those things. Okay? And then that is the way that you begin to draw closer to God. So with all of these measures in mind, praying and worship and study and serving and repenting, then we can stay close to God. The prodigal son of Jesus' story in Luke 15, he went away from the father and not until he came home to the father and told him, 
Father, I have sinned against you in heaven. Make me a servant. Not until he did that did he feel close to God. And so the strong advice here is to always to stay close to God, especially in times when we're not real sure what is happening and we're not sure where our heart is taking us. Okay. A third observation is to, is to be sure, to be aware of the freedom, the freedom that God gives us. Okay. Be aware of the freedom that God gives us. Okay. Now notice here from verses 4 to 8 in 1 Kings 19 that Elijah gets so far, he gets in the wilderness, and then an angel of the Lord appears and provides him some food. Is this angel food? Provides him some food and says, if you're going on your journey, you're going to need some food. So he goes in the strength of this food, a 40-day journey all the way down to Mount Sinai. Okay. To me, the lesson here is, if, um, if we're going to decide to have some self-pity, God is not going to stand in our way. He might even help us on our journey. If we decide to go into the depths of despair and to get down on ourselves, on God, and on others, then don't expect God to get in your way. He just might help you take this journey. It might be the very thing you need to take. Okay. It seems to me God is just helping him go all the way to where he has in mind to go and then to try to speak to him. So be aware of the freedom of choice that God gives us, but also be aware that this freedom can be deceptive because, because God does not get in our way, it sometimes feels like this is the thing that we ought to do. Okay. But be aware. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right unto man, but sometimes the end of those ways are death. Let us beware of our feelings. We don't want to get so down and get so crossways in our, in our minds and hearts that we end up leaving the faith. Remember what Peter says in 2 Peter 2, 20-22. He says the last state of that condition is worse than the first. In other words, if you come to Christ and then you fall away, the falling away state is worse than the state you were in before you ever come to Christ. He says it would be, have, have been better for them never to have known the ways of righteousness than to have known it and then turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. You'll be following, Peter says in 2 Peter 2.22, you'll be following the old proverb that says the dog has returned to his vomit and the pig after having been washed, has returned to the wallowing in the mud, the mire. If you want a good picture of how God views sin, look at that old proverb, the dog returns to his vomit. And so an observation here in the third place is to be aware. God is very respectful of us. He created us in his image. He gives us the freedom choice, but let us beware where that can take us because God will let us. You remember in Luke 15, going back to the prodigal son, Luke 15, verse 11, it was very easy for the prodigal son, the younger son, to come up to his father and say, 
give me my inheritance. And the father just gave it to him. He allowed him to go his way to spend all of his living on riotous living and to end up down there with the hogs, feeding the hogs. He allowed him to do that. A fourth observation in addition to the freedom is to notice the question. There's a one question test here found by God. When God has uh, verse 9, when God comes to Elijah in the cave, he says, uh, Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? A one question test. Again, the question comes to him, what is it, verse 14? Yes, verse 13. What are you doing here, Elijah? And then he answers in verse uh, 14. That's a good question for us to ask if we ever, that's a good question no matter what state of mind we're in, but if we're ever down in the dumps, it's a good question to ask. What, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? Is this really the person that I want to be? Is this really the kind of person? Is this the kind of example I want to set? Is in, when it's all said and done, is this the kind of reactions I want to have in life? This is, this is not what I want to be. And so God is asking him the question, what are you doing here? He's certainly implying, Elijah, you should not be on this journey. You should not be doing this. You should not be in this state of mind, uh, but he was. We need to, to contemplate this question for ourselves. Perhaps follow it up with, um, with some other questions, like um, the reason that you're in this despair, is there really a sufficient reason for you to be here? Is, is there really a sufficient reason for you to be here? I mean, if this despair leads to you leaving the faith is there a sufficient reason for, for that to ever happen? And we just simply recall, you know, Matthew 16, 26, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul, his own soul? There's really never a sufficient reason for us to be so down against ourselves and against God that we would lose our faith and lose our soul. Another question you might ask is, uh, what would uh, Jesus have me to do? I'm feeling down. What would the Lord have me to do? What did the Lord uh, do? And then we might ask ourselves, well, are there other Christians who have been uh, in this situation? Okay. And I'll tell you, personally, the, the time that I have spent with um, just a number of families here through many sicknesses and passings has certainly strengthened me personally uh, to handle whatever has come our way over the last few months. And so you might ask yourself when you're down, well, what, how, do, how, have, how have other Christians handled uh, such despair? And, and have they had greater affliction but less drama? And that would have been a great question to Elijah. Elijah, you're, you're going through all this drama and perhaps others have gone through worse situations, and here you are, and uh, they, they've not carried on like this. And then a question to ask ourselves as we ponder this question is, um, you know, are there reasons to be encouraged? If you're discouraged, then ask yourself, well, are there reasons to be encouraged? And there's always reasons to be encouraged because God is still on His throne. His Word is just as powerful. Heaven is still being built. Uh, 
for us, we're still breathing. We still have room to grow. There are other people breathing. There are other people out there who have good and honest hearts. There are plenty of reasons for us to be encouraged. And so notice not only the freedom that God gives, but also notice this question that he asked. That's our, our fourth observation. Our fifth observation. And it's just seven of them, so don't get all upset. Uh, but our fifth observation is to notice how uh, small Elijah had become. How, you know, a person all wrapped up in himself makes a very small package. Okay. Uh, you notice it here in verse uh, 10 and then again in verse 14, but his answer is the same. He says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. He has some pronoun trouble. Okay. He just keeps talking about himself. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They have thrown down your altars. They have killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even only I, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And that happens easily. And it's almost a human tendency to, to when we're feeling down, to, to think more about ourselves than, than anyone else. But Jesus, that's probably the reason he said it so often, to deny ourselves, Matthew 1624, and, and the Apostle Paul is inspired to say in Philippians 2, 3, and 4 that uh, with lowliness of mind, we ought to esteem others better than ourselves. He's looking uh, not to your own things, but to the things of others. Not being nosy, but looking for ways to serve other people. The fact is, God tells him here at the end of Larry's reading there in verse 18, he says, I still have reserved 7,000 people in Israel whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and they have not kissed him uh, whatsoever. And we need to be reminded of that. that there, there are other people, many other people, who are just as good and honest, who are just as righteous or more so than, than we are. And we are thankful to God uh, for them. And I've thought about that recently uh, in my communications with Brother Marlon Rutherford and, and he is going to Ukraine and to Poland and uh, going back and forth. He's still making trips back and forth and, and um, understanding that there are Christians who are standing up for their faith, who are enduring many trials uh, in their faith uh, across the world. People that perhaps we'll never meet, but they're good and they're honest and they're, they're studying and they want to do right before God. There are people in in children's homes, Christians in children's homes, who are sharing the gospel uh, with families, very needy families, every day. And you could just go on and on talking about uh, there, are, there are more people out there than, than us, and we ought to be thankful for them and learn from them. You remember that time, I think it's recorded in Mark 9, that Jesus' disciples were out uh, working and serving. And John said to Jesus, Mark 9, 38, John said to Jesus, uh, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name by my authority uh, will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for 
us. For truly I say unto you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Jesus just letting them know that, yes, I'm working with you right now, but you're not the only ones I've been working with. All right. So notice how that there's a tendency to get all wrapped up in yourself, and, and perhaps God was uh, teaching this lesson to Elijah. Okay. Now, this is one I want you to think about, this observation about being down, being down. Did you ever hear Tom Holland talk about being down? He says sometimes he would get so down he felt like he could just walk right under a door. Oh man, that's a that's pretty far down. Okay. Another time I heard him say that he feels so down sometimes that he could, he felt like he could just sit on a dime and his legs would hang off. That's pretty far down. But think about this in regards to um, Elijah. Especially here, verses um, 10, 11, 12, and 13. What is God doing with Elijah here in verses 10 to 13? He has Elijah go up on the mount of God, and God's going to pass by Elijah. And so he brings a great wind, and the wind breaks up the rocks and tears up the mountains, but God is not in that wind. And then he brings a great earthquake. And God is not in that earthquake. He brings a great fire. God is not in that fire. And he brings a, a, uh, the sound of a low whisper. And uh, Elijah has to cover his face with, face with his mantle. And God comes back and asks the same question. You know, what are you doing here, Elijah? I want to know what God's doing with Elijah. In bringing all this uh, spectacular works before him once again is he and I'm okay with this interpretation I'm okay with it but is he simply bringing more evidence of the power of God is God bringing more evidence to to Elijah of his power to kind of reassure him kind of build him back up and that could be it I don't think that's the angle that that I see here because Elijah, of all prophets, already knew a lot about uh, the power of God. Okay. Here's what I think, and, and this is just, uh, I just want to think, think this with you, think, think this through with you. You know, he had this big contest back in, in chapter 18. And perhaps, very much perhaps, perhaps Elijah thought, well, after this huge defeat of the prophets of Baal, right in the presence of, of the children of Israel, and in the presence of many of the worshipers of Baal, surely people will turn away from, from this idol worship, so much so that maybe even Jezebel and Ahab will be, will be overthrown. Okay. Surely, you'd, he, he, maybe in his mind he's thinking, surely this is going to happen. And then when you open up just, just a little while later, you open up chapter 19, and there he is being seriously threatened by Jezebel. And perhaps what has happened here with Elijah is that he's miscalculated the devil. Okay. So this observation I would simply call the lion is still roaring. Okay. The lion being the devil. Okay. Perhaps Elijah thought things were going to automatically get a lot better because we just had this great 
victory, and perhaps he, he, he forgot that the devil works even harder after a victory from the people of God than he ever does before. Okay. You know 1 Peter 5 verse 8 talks about the devil being a roaring lion, but Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 13 and 14, the evil men will, will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. The devil's not going to stop. And, and, and people are going to follow the devil. Now, hopefully less and less, but people will still be following the devil, even after great victories. You'd think it wouldn't be the case, but it is. Okay. Let's compare that with the New Testament for a second. Jesus, John chapter 11, John chapter 12, absolutely, in the presence of many, raised Lazarus from the dead. John chapter 12, what were they trying to do to Lazarus? Kill him. Kill him. Many of the unbelieving Jews, you would think that that would absolutely change their mind, but it didn't. It just made them dig in deeper into their hardness of heart, and they want to kill Lazarus to get rid of the evidence that Jesus is indeed uh, the one. John chapter 12 37 actually says, Though Jesus did all these miracles in front of them, in the presence of the people, still they would not believe. And it caused John to quote from Isaiah 53, Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's a prophecy about how hard people's hearts would be. You would think that after Saul of Tarsus, you would think that after Saul of Tarsus, Paul the Apostle, was converted to Christ, the one who had put more energy and funds into persecuting, killing Christians than any man alive, you would think that after his conversion, people would just start walking right and talking right. But what do we see? Acts 9, verse 22, there Saul, Paul, is doing what he ought to do. He is back in the synagogues now declaring Jesus as the Son of God. Acts 9.23, though, says they were seeking to kill Saul. And so the lesson here is the devil is still roaring. And sometimes we, like Elijah, we may get um, confused or deluded because you'd think that with all the blessings God gives us, with all the, the plain teachings that he has in the Bible, that people would turn, and sometimes it doesn't happen, and that causes us to get down. Especially in our day, especially in, in our area of the world, with all the great resources and all the great events and, and all the, the great teaching that is done throughout many of the churches in, in the southeast and in the southern part of the United States, you would think that people would would be gladly turned to the simple gospel of Jesus. And it doesn't always happen that way. Our final observation is God is not in the pandering business. God is not in the pandering business. Chapter 19, verse 15, what does he tell? What does he finally tell Elijah? Okay. What we mean by pandering is to cater to someone's whims and whinings and and, and wishes and weaknesses and excuses, God's not in that business. Okay. He tells 
He tells Elijah to go. There's work to do. You go. We've got kings to anoint. We've got prophets to anoint. You've got a next generation of prophets to, to prepare. You go. You go. You're leaving this cave. You're leaving this area. You're going back uh, to work. At, at the core of being a Christian, it's really not based on emotions. There's much about being a Christian that is emotional, and it ought to be emotional, because of the, of the tremendous love that God sends our way, but also seeing that love um, displayed in the lives of people, it ought to be emotional. Okay. God has made us that way. But at its core, being a Christian is not, being about, it's not about being emotional, but it's about the will. It's about the, the determined determination and will within us. Jesus said in John 7, 17, if any man wills to do his will, he shall know of the teaching. Okay. I believe that's what, that's what God is coming to Elijah with. I, I think that's what God is coming to us with. When we get down, remember that it comes down to our heart. It comes down to, to the will. And do we have the desire? Do we have the hunger and thirst for God uh, to, to follow him? We remind ourselves so often, it's so good, when Jesus is praying in the garden, he says, um, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. There is a desire within Christians, a will within us, to want to do right regardless what's happening, or regardless of how we're feeling. Okay, that, at the core, that's, that's, that's the core of who we are, is that we have a will to follow God no matter what is happening or around us or within us. So Elijah is down in the dumps, but perhaps looking at this chapter and noticing the different areas of struggle that he had, whether it be the fear of death, or whether it be trying to put distance between him and God, or whether it be struggling with the freedoms that God had given him, or trying to ponder the question that God uh, posed to him, or whether he was just confused about the work of Satan, whatever it was, God helped him to come out of his despair and go back to work for him. We will get discouraged from uh, time to time, but the Lord can lift us up. And if we can assist anyone with any particular spiritual need this evening. Won't you let that happen uh, tonight? Uh, this is the most valuable book that's ever been thought of. This is, this is a treasure. This is a treasure. And together we can sit down and read and study, and we can walk away with real solutions, real answers to anyone's problems, especially the sin problem. Through Jesus Christ, we can have salvation. If you need to come, come right now as we stand together, as we sing.